I will begin with a, a little story of something that we experienced in Melbourne. Uh, while, while we, my wife and myself, visit Melbourne, we often go to a place called the Royal Botanical Gardens in Cranbourne, uh, just about an hour's drive from the place where we stay. And there's a beautiful garden with thousands and thousands of exotic and uh, beautiful plants and flowers. And among them is something uh, very special. It's called the upside-down tree. And the sign at the bottom of the tree describes it as the acacia, cultriformis casket. And let me try to describe it to you. The trunk is as big as my forearm. It grows up from the ground up to a, a height of about a meter above the ground. And then instead of growing up and the branches coming out, what happened was that the branches all drop down and fall towards the earth. It's as if the branches are going to seek some nutrition from the ground. And just before it reaches the, the, the ground, little beautiful green leaves begin to appear and sort of form a skirt, a beautiful skirt around the, the base of the, the tree. So it looks like the tree has got roots that are growing down from the the, the trunk and trying to reach nutrition from the ground. That's why it's called an upside-down tree. Now, I'm sorry if you didn't get what I'm describing, uh, but please go there and see for yourself. Or give me your WhatsApp number and I'll send a picture of it to you. Uh, it's really something that is wonderful, an upside-down tree. And at this point, I'm sure some of you will be asking, what is this old man going on trying to say on this? Uh, what on earth has an upside-down tree got to do with today's message from Exodus? Well, friends, every time I look at this upside-down tree, it reminds me of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, and also chapter 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12, both passages of which are printed in the middle of your bulletin, and uh, let me just read this to you. Uh, first of all, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 to 21. Where is the one who is wise? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12, Paul says, for our boast is not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. Well, the connection of the upside-down tree with Moses is that Moses was arguably one of the most unlikely of all the hundreds of thousands of eligible Hebrew males sojourning in Egypt at a material time to be the instrument or tool of God's rescue of his people. And yet God turned the wisdom of the world upside down and chose him to lead the people of God out of slavery in Egypt to a land that God has promised Abraham, their forefather. And in Jesus, we are also pointed toward Jesus. And as Paul has said in our two passages, the message that God the Son had to die to save sinful people like you and me 
must be even greater foolishness in the wisdom of the world. And yet, God did so. God did it because salvation is by His grace in His Son and to those who trusted in Him. Foolishness to the world, but to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. Now please turn with me to page 54 as we begin with Exodus 3 and then we'll work our way through to Exodus uh, 4 till the end. Now first of all, we look at the mission that God has in mind for Moses from chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Now last week we saw that Moses had to run away from Egypt because he had killed an Egyptian and Pharaoh was hunting him down. And uh, we see the picture being painted in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the, plea, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now Moses was happy and contented. He was married with two sons, far away from the stress of Egyptian and Hebrew politics and struggles, contentedly gracing his father-in-law's flock. And then God appeared to him. God appeared to him in a bush that did not even burn up, even though flames of fire were shooting up from it. And God called out to him, Moses, Moses. And announcing himself to Moses as the holy God of the forefathers of the Hebrews. And verse 10 summarized what the mission uh, God had for Moses. Let me read that to you. Come, God said, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You would think that Moses would be thrilled and honored by being chosen, but no, he was not. In fact, Moses tried all sorts, tried to give all sorts of excuses to God why he was the wrong choice. Now let's look at all, all the four of Moses' objections, uh, excuses to what God wanted from him before we look at God's response, shall we? Well, the first objection was, who am I? And you, this one you can find in verse 11 of chapter 3. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Once bitten, twice shy, so they say. Moses had taken revenge for the Hebrew who was being beaten by an Egyptian, probably a taskmaster. He killed the Egyptian. And then he tried to be a peacemaker between two Hebrews who were fighting and quarreling among themselves. And they rejected him. And he had to run for his life 40 years before. And now he was happy, he was contented. God, and God wanted him to go back to confront all these problems and stress again. And you can see Moses' logic. He said, so who am I to go to Pharaoh? I'm just a poor old uh, shepherd in the field herding my father-in-law's flock. And he is Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the most powerful man of that time in that region. No, 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 God, please, not me. That is his first objection. Now, the second objection can be found in verse 13 of chapter 3. What is your name? Moses said to God, 
If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, people like us, reading this, may find it a bit puzzling. Why would Hebrews want to ask Moses for the name of God? But friends, to the Hebrew, a name is not just for identification like Gordon here stuck on my surplice. It's not just for identification. A name pointed toward that person's character, how he had acted in the past, how he is acting now, and how he would act in the future. They knew God as El Shaddai from Genesis 17, verse 1. El Shaddai, the God Almighty, who appeared to Abraham at the age of 99 and covenanted with him. El Shaddai, the all-powerful, the all-sufficient, all-sufficient, and more importantly, the all-provident who will provide for them. They knew him as a God who had sent Joseph before them to Egypt so that when the famine struck the land, the people would have a safe landing in Egypt. And so now they were sure to demand to know more about him and what he was going to do, what he was going to do through Moses. Now, if only God were to give his name to Moses, they would be much more confident in listening to Moses. What is your name? He asked God. Well, the third objection, they wouldn't believe me. And you can find this on the next uh, chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. And Moses said, uh, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. We can almost hear Moses saying this, No, no, Lord, they won't believe me if I just tell them this. They will say I'm a liar, that you didn't appear to me at all. I remember previously when I killed an Egyptian because he was beating a Hebrew. Somehow the Pharaoh of that time knew about it. And when I tried to resolve your quarrel and your fighting, they got angry with me and I had to flee for my life. That was Moses' third objection. Now the fourth objection you can find over the page on verse, 12, on verse 10. Let me read that to you. First, the fourth objection. But I can't speak well. well. So Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. This was totally a rejection of God's call. And the excuse that Moses gave was that God has not made him the right instrument for this task. He has not been given the ability to speak well so that he can lead the people out and face uh, Pharaoh. Uh, please send somebody else. That was Moses' uh, fourth objection. Well, let's see how God respond, responded to each one of Moses' excuse. God's response to Moses' first objection, who am I? And you can find this if you turn back to the previous page. In verse 12 of chapter 3, God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now Moses has objected, saying, Who am I? 
But God now answered him saying, it's not who you are, Moses. It is who I am. It's not what you can do. It's what I can do. And the proof of the pudding will be in the eating, so they say. And when the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt, they would gather here at the same very mountain and they would worship God. That would be the proof that God was with him, the proof of the pudding or the nasilama, if you like. Now, in verses 3, 14 to 22, God replied to Moses' second objection. Moses has asked for God's name. Well, God answered in verse 14. He said this, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, later in the history of Israel, this phrase, I am who I am, will be consolidated into four consonants, Y-H-W-H, that we will call Yahweh, but which the, the Israelites will never call. And so, I am who I am. And it implies this. God has no equal. He is the great I am. God is the great I am because He has always been there. There was never a time when God wasn't there. He is just I am. He is the great I am who is always here in the present and He will always be there, the great I am, in the future. There will never come a time when the great I am will not be there. You can summarize it all in three words. He is eternal and unchanging. And one more thing that goes beyond the description of El Shaddai as the all-powerful, all-sufficient, and all-provident is that the great I Am is not limited in all that He has done or am doing or will do. So, in the rest, in the rest of chapter 3, you will see that when God acted, there will be nothing the Pharaoh can do. Nothing the Pharaoh can do. He would just have to let the Hebrews go and the Hebrews will not go empty-handed. And you can find this at the end of our chapter. The Hebrews will plunder the Egyptians. So that was God's response to the second objection. Now, God responds to Moses' third objection in, verses, uh, in chapter 4, verses 2 to 9. I think in the middle of your page, it is only mentioned as 4, verse 9. So if you are, if you are following it, um, you might want to amend it to verse, verses 2 to 9. And the objection was this. Moses said, they won't believe me, Lord. Well, God replied, show them these three signs. He said, throw your staff onto the ground. It will turn itself into a, a snake. Pick it up. Pick up the snake by the tail and it will become a stick again. Um, it did, if that didn't work uh, to, to uh, convince the people, then what you do is you take your hand, which is very clean and very uh, healthy, you stick it inside your cloak, you take it out, it will become diseased, leprous. No worries. You just put it back in your, your cloak again and you pull it out, it will be clean again. These two signs should be able to convince the Hebrews that you came you came from me, that I have given you this power to do all these miracles. But if that two signs did not work, don't worry. Just go to the Nile, take some water, come back, throw it on the ground, and the water will turn to blood. These three signs should be able to convince the Hebrews that I am with you. That was God's 
response to Moses' third objection. They wouldn't believe me. Now, remember how even with all these assurances, Moses objected for the fourth time, saying that he didn't know how to speak well. And he asked God to send somebody else. Well, God's righteous anger was triggered against Moses. How dare you question me or doubt me? I am the God of all creation. We can read this. Uh, we can read this in verse 11. The Lord said to him, Who has met man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You see, it's a total rejection of him. How dare you reject me and question my call? But even in the midst of his anger at Moses' rejection, uh, God was gracious and provided a solution. Moses' brother Aaron would go with him before the people and later go with him before Pharaoh. Fast forward to the end of our passage uh, from chapter 4, verses 29 to 30. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And the people believed and worshipped God. And now, we will look at the unlikely instrument, part two. Now, let's go back to chapter four, verse 18 to 20, which we have not looked at. Now, finally, Moses was silent. God has given him all these assurances, so he became silent. And he went to his father-in-law, Jethro, and asked for his father-in-law's permission. And he packed his wife and their two sons on the donkey, and he headed back to Egypt. We pick up the narrative uh, in chapter 4, verses 21 to 23, at the bottom of the page. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, so that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Well, God told him again, Pharaoh will not let the children of Israel go. But because the children of Israel were God's covenanted firstborn, all of Egypt's firstborn sons, including Pharaoh's own firstborn, will die. And now suddenly, in verse 24, we were told again why Moses was such an unlikely choice to be God's instrument of rescue. And uh, as we read verse 24, I will just, ch I will just change the two hymns, H-I-M, and put uh, different nouns to it. And I'll tell you the reason why I do that. And this is the way I will read verse 24. At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and sought to put his son, Gershom, to death. Let me read that again. At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses, met Moses and sought to put his son, Gershom, to death. 
You see, although he himself had been circumcised and has been brought up in the Hebrew family according to Hebrew custom, Moses' firstborn son, Gershom, has not been circumcised in accordance with God's covenant given in Genesis 17 from verses 10 to 14. I'll just pick up verse 14 of uh, Genesis 17 uh, to read. Eh? Genesis 17 verse 14 says this, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, according to God's covenant, any uncircumcised male will be put to death. And Moses had been so comfortable. He has been living in a pagan world that he has not kept the covenant with God. And therefore, Gershom must now be put to death. But Zipporah, Moses' mouth, uh, Moses' wife, quickly cut off the foreskin of her son to keep the covenant. But that didn't mean that he, she was happy. The passage tells us that she took the bloody piece of skin and he smeared the blood on Moses' own genitals, are written here as feet, and called Moses a bridegroom of blood. See, friends, how, why Moses was such an unlikely choice? The man chosen to rescue God's covenanted people himself did not keep the covenant of God. It took his wife to do so and thus to save the life of their son. So we, come to, we have come to the end of our passage. And so in conclusion, how does Moses, the unlikely rescuer, inspire us? Well, before I go to answer this, I must first make an uh, an apology because not all of us are, are in, included in what I'm going to say. So, but I have to say this. If Moses lives in Kel today, he will most likely be a good Anglican worshipping as a Mary's. Happy to come to church every Sunday, bringing his tithes, joining in the hymns, and joining in the the prayers, and trying hard not to be caught sleeping during the sermon. And we're called to do anything else, even something simple, like being a welcomer, or an offertory steward, or an usher, or talk to visitors, or newcomers, would give all the excuses that we have heard from our narratives today. Now, when called to learn more about Christ by attending the numerous seminars and courses in St. Mary's, in our church, they would even find more excuses than you can find in Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Now, friends, the church does not need many Moseses, but the church does need volunteers to help in so many of the seemingly unimportant tasks which if we don't do, will have to be given to paid employees or contractors. I shared with the, the people in the morning services about our tea and coffee being served in the, Sunday terrace, uh, in the tea terrace on Sunday mornings. That's being looked after by paid staff because there were no volunteers to do so. These paid staff might not have the same Christian values that we have. Therefore, friends, volunteer for this, this work and put a great big smile on your face 
and therefore put great big smiles on the face, faces of those whom you serve. Now, the second thing I have to say is this. When God calls us to action, he does not leave us alone to fend for ourselves. As he told Moses, I will be with you. Now, these words remind us of Jesus' own words in Matthew 28, when he gave us the great commission. Behold, he said, I am with you to the end of the age. These words hold such great comfort and has been the source of strength for generations and generations uh, when disciples answer God's call. You see, friends, we don't have to worry that we may not have the right caliber to do certain things because we can rely on God to give us the strength of His Spirit to do what He calls us to do. We don't have to make excuses. We just have to do it and depend on Him to give us the skill to do it, to trust completely in Him. Now, the third thing and final thing. Remember the upside-down tree that I started off with? In the wisdom of the world, Sundays are my only days of rest. This is the wisdom of the world. So please don't ask me to do anything else. I like to spend some quality time with my family, I play golf with my buddies, go swimming or fishing. Oh, don't ask me to do churchy things. But God has turned, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And He has allowed Himself to be known by us. He invites us to know Him and to taste Him like honey in the rock, as the psalmist would say. And in our own small way, we can make time for others to know Him that little bit much better. So in summary, friends, what can Moses inspire us? Well, in summary, Moses, Moses can inspire us to move out of our comfort zone to fearlessly go and serve the Lord. That's what Moses can inspire us to do. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for speaking to us from the story of Moses. We thank you that he pointed to Jesus who came not to just save your people from the troubles of this world, but from slavery to sin and eternal death. And we pray that your spirit will help us to hold on tight to him. In his name we pray. Let us stand to confess our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed.